We are continuing our series in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 15 right now. Our series is called The Works of God Through His People. And if you remember last week, we talked about rules of engagement. So when to enter a dispute or when not to enter a quarrel, sort of the difference between those words and all that. So where we find ourselves this week is they're in the middle of this dispute where some of these people who used to be Pharisees, they're now Christians, and they're saying Christians need to follow the law of Moses. So there's this massive dispute. They're discussing it with all the elders of the church, and it's this whole thing. So tonight's sermon is called Personal Revelation Tested. Personal Revelation Tested. So we're going to look at what Peter has to say as we open up in Acts chapter 15. And we're in verse 7. So it says, And when there had been much dispute, right? That was the topic of last week. That's where we find ourselves. This dispute is ongoing. They're in the middle of it. And it says, After there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter was given a personal revelation. If you guys remember, God gave him this vision three times of this sheet being unrolled and there's all kinds of animals. And God says, take, kill, and eat. And he says, no, God, I don't eat unclean things. And God says, don't call anything unclean that I have said is clean. And it becomes this thing of then God tells him to go with this Gentile man. And they believe, they receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter's like, holy cow, God is moving in and through the Gentile nations. So there's this sort of shift as we find ourselves in what we call the age of grace. And so Peter is saying, God gave me this revelation. So he has this personal revelation. And what Peter does not say is, God told me this thing. I had this vision. Therefore, you need to yield to it. Therefore, it's true. Like, I had this thing. The Lord spoke to me. So you just need to believe it. That's, that's not what he says. Instead, he goes on to give evidence of how the Holy Spirit confirmed his revelation. So he's not just saying, I saw this vision of light. I saw this thing. Here's what God told me. And you all need to just yield to it because God spoke to me. No, he says, God chose me to speak this thing. And then he goes on to give this evidence. As we continue in verse 8, he says, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them, speaking of the Gentiles here, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So, there's sort of four main points that I want to hit on that that Peter just said, and I'll, I'll give you the four points, and then we'll unpack each of them. The four things that I want to focus on that Peter just said is, Peter points to himself as a reliable source. 
Number two is God spoke directly to the Gentiles. Number three is God cleansed their hearts. Uh, he cleansed the hearts of the Gentiles just in the same way that he cleansed the hearts of the Jews. And number four, God is giving them grace outside of their works. So why are we trying to force them to have these works in order to have salvation? So number one, Peter points to himself as a reliable source. Peter was not always this way. He could not have always pointed to himself as the super reliable guy. If we remember him throughout the Gospels and some of his early ministry, uh, he was a little wishy-washy. He was all over the place. He was very emotional. And he has sort of these weird outbursts. He rebukes Jesus on multiple occasions. And Jesus is like, no, like, I'm God. Like, that's not how this works. He tells Jesus, no, I'm not going to let them take you to crucify you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And Peter's like, I'm never going to leave you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, actually, you're going to deny me three times before tomorrow. Like, <laughs> And then he does. So Peter is like sort of this all over the place guy in his early ministry. But when Jesus dies and then rises again, and right before he ascends into heaven, he talks to Peter and he sort of transfers his ministry to Peter. And, and since that time, Peter has proven himself to be reliable, trustworthy, faithful, and the rock that Jesus prophesied that he would be. Jesus said, uh, Peter's name is actually Simon. And Jesus said, I'm going to call you Peter. And that word, Peter, it means rock. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. So it's all sort of resting on Peter's shoulders. He is the rock of the church. He is the guy he was going to take Jesus's ministry and, and spread it throughout all of the nations. And that's where we find Peter now. And what he's saying to the elders, to all the church, to all the leadership of the Christians is, you know me. And he's, he's not puffing his chest and saying, I'm this great guy, but he's saying, God chose me. And that's a, the only reason I have any worth is because God chose me and he chose me to do this specific thing. So he's, he's pointing to himself as the person who God chose to do this thing. Number two, God spoke directly to the Gentiles. This is a really big piece of evidence that sometimes we brush over. But first, let me clarify. My version says in verse eight, so God who knows the heart acknowledged them. The original word, and I think the NASB says it well, that God who knows the heart testified to them. This word, my Bible translates it as acknowledges, but it means to like to testify to them, to this other note here says, bore witness to them. So he's saying that God who knows the hearts, he, he spoke to them. He testified to them. He bore witness to the Gentiles. And this is a really big piece of evidence. And it's significant because up to this point, God revealed his word to and through the Jews only. Now, God's word was always for all nations, but up to this point, it had only ever come to the Jews and through the Jews, and it was supposed to be proclaimed into the nations through them. So for him to say, God, who knows the hearts, testified to them, they'd be like, whoa, hang on a second. Like, that's new. This is different. We've turned a corner. And that's why this is such a big piece of evidence that Peter is presenting. Peter is saying that the Holy Spirit spoke to and through the Gentiles, and this would have caught their attention. It would have made them listen. Number three, God cleansed their hearts, the hearts of the Gentiles, just in the same way that he did to the Jews. So 
after these Gentiles had faith in Jesus, they had no more desire to go back to their old ways. Their desires were for the word of the Lord. They wanted to learn more about God. They wanted to hang out with the disciples and with the apostles. Once the Gentiles came into the faith, they, they believed in everything that Jesus did and said, they all of a sudden, they didn't want to worship the idols. They just threw it off, and they were moving forward into their relationship with Jesus. And, and Peter points to this as them being cleansed. And this is a work of God that he has always done to and through the, the Jews, but this is happening to the Gentiles now. Number four, God is giving them grace outside of their works, so why are we going to force works on them? So historically... Peter is saying, we, the Jews, we've always failed at keeping the law. And we see this here in um, verse 10. It says, Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on their neck, on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So, again, historically, and not just historically, like we read throughout the Bible that they've never been great at keeping the law. But Peter's also saying, like, personally, like, None of us can keep the law perfectly. That's why we needed Jesus to come and keep the law perfectly and completely live this flawless life and be our sacrifice so that we could enter into the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, right? That's why we needed Jesus, because we will always fail at doing the law. And no matter what, what what Peter is saying is, we have always failed at the law, but even though we are faithless, Paul says elsewhere, God is also faithful. He's always faithful. So God, even though his people always failed, God was always faithful to follow after them and bring him into relationship with him. Peter's saying that God gave us grace. He's always given the Jews grace. And now he's saying that grace is now extended to and through the Gentiles. And he's saying you're disagreeing with God. If you put this yoke on them, if, if you make them try and follow this thing, it's like if God is moving in this way, right? This grace is being extended to the Gentiles. Why are you going to disagree with what God is doing? So after he says this, if you caught it in verse 12, it says that the crowd became silent. And then they started to listen to the testimony of Paul and Barnabas, who had just come from preaching to the Gentiles, who all of these people were coming into the faith. And so this thing that Peter said kind of makes them go, oh, huh. And then they hear all these testimonies, and it's more evidence to what Peter is saying. And they're finally listening. They're not disputing. They're not arguing anymore. They're finally hearing what is actually being said, and they're hearing this, these testimonies. And this evidence that Peter presents to them is strong enough to make them stop and think and then start listening. And at that point, we can continue in verse 13. It says, And after they had become silent, James, this is the brother of Jesus here, answered saying, Man and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles 
who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. So what is James saying by quoting Amos here? He, he's quoting Amos chapter 9 here when he says, the word, as it's written, right? The prophets said this thing is going to happen, and he quotes Amos chapter 9. And so the reason he does that is saying, look, like the temple is rebuilt. Like it was totally destroyed during or right before the exiles and it's been completely floored. But now it's being rebuilt and it is rebuilt. And he's saying, look, the Gentiles are becoming children of God. Like just like this scripture says. And he says that the Lord, or he quotes Amos there at the end, it says, the Lord who does all these things, he's saying, God is doing all of these things. He's saying, this prophecy in Amos is being fulfilled right now. Verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. He's saying, God had this thing planned out all along. Verse 19, therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's saying if God had this whole thing planned out all along and the Lord is doing all these things, we can't try and control them. We can't put this yoke on them. He's saying God has made them free. And so to burden them, to put that yoke on them would be to harass them. The word trouble here, therefore I judge that we should not trouble. In the original text, that word means to harass or annoy. Like we shouldn't just annoy them with all these rules. We shouldn't harass them with these rules. We shouldn't trouble them with all these rules. If God has set them free, who are we to put this weighty yoke on them? We can't. Verse 20. But that we write to them. I'll bow back up so it makes a little more sense. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from these things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. He gives these four things, James does. He gives his opinion about what he sees as really important in order to stay pure. Because Christians... We should always be trying to stay pure. That's always been the goal of God for the, his people to be. He says over and over throughout the scriptures, God says, be holy as I am holy. Like set yourself aside, set, be, be different than the culture around you. So some of these things that James mentions here, Paul later talks to different areas and says, yeah, this is like not super necessary, like for instance, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but specifically like the food offered to idols thing that James just said, like, tell them not to do that. Paul later says like, yeah, like that's not that big of a deal. So the point that I'm trying to bring up is these are not laws. Okay. These are ways that these new believers can separate themselves from the culture around them to be acting differently so that they are noticed as Christians. These are, these are ways like, okay, these people should do this thing. And like I said, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Verse 21. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. He's saying there are Jews in every single city 
that there are now Christians in. These Gentiles exist in these cities where there are synagogues and there are Jews. Therefore, they need to be a good witness. They need to separate themselves from the culture around them, but they need to also be a good witness to the Jews that are around them. And that's why we're giving you these four things. Verse 29, or sorry, 22 through 29. This is the letter they write them. It says, Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are in who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised, this is speaking of the law, and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. He's saying these people who are saying these things, we didn't tell them to say those things. Verse 25, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So a few things real quick here is these people they're writing to, it says they are writing to the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. This is where Paul and Barnabas just got back from. This is where Paul was stoned and left for dead. And so when he says in verse 26, uh, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, these people know that well. They saw the scars. They saw the bloody pulp that was Paul, they saw Paul messed up because he was simply preaching the grace and love of Jesus Christ. So he's writing to them saying, hey, we're sending these people and we're sending these other people, Silas and Judas, as well as some other witnesses, to to be witnesses for the entire church. We've united uh, as a complete church, all of Christianity at the time, the elders that, uh, at that time, uh, we've gathered together, and, and here's what we want to say to you. So we're going to send this group of people so that you know it's from us. And then he gives them these four things. To abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So want to kind of quickly unpack these four things and why that they see them as important. Uh, number one, the abstaining from things offered to idols. Uh, this is to sanctify, as we talked about a minute ago, sanctify yourselves, be set apart. And I mentioned this scripture a little bit ago, but we can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 27 and 28. It says, If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, 
eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it, for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness. What Paul is saying here is, the simple, God created all these things, it's okay to eat these things, don't make it a big thing, and be really legalistic about the thing. But if they make it a point to say, oh, like, I know you're a Christian, this was offered to idols. It is a sanctifying thing. It's something to set up, set yourself apart. It's to be a good witness to say, oh, well, I don't eat things offered to idols. So he's saying, for conscience sake, don't really ask about it. Don't make it a big thing. But if you happen to know that it's offered to idols, or if somebody makes it a point to tell you, then just abstain from it so that you're a good witness to them and so that you're not messing with your conscience. It's like, oh, should I be eating this thing? Like, again, the food itself is not going to defile you, but if you are doing something that you know is a sin, then then you're sinning. So he's, that's why he says, for conscience sake, do this thing. So the reason I'm pointing to this is to say that it's not simply the act of eating the food, but it's it's a part. It's a way to separate yourself in culture as we don't eat things offered to idols. We don't believe in idols. We are separate from idols. So you do that for the people around you, as as Paul said. If they say, "Hey, uh, I know you're a Christian. This is offered to idols," then for their sake and for conscience' sake, say, "Sorry, I can't eat it," because then you're being a witness to them. You're separating yourself from that culture. Number two, abstain from blood. This is uh, something that comes from the law, but it is the reason for it is for health's sake. So there's like, we always say the Ten Commandments, there's actually like 613. Uh, and a lot of those commandments had to do with health. And it was like, it became really, really religious and weird, the like ritual of washing your hands and like, you know, it, it really, they were making more of a show of it than actually the purpose of the thing. But the reason that God had them wash their hands before they ate and had them like go see the priest if they had a white hair coming out of a mole to check them for leprosy. Like there's these really weird things that when you read it, you're like, what is this a law for? The point is be healthy. Don't partake in things that you know might make somebody sick. And, and that is always been the will of God to give his people long life. God wants his people to live long lives to glorify him. So people always talk about like, oh, don't smoke cigarettes because you're the temple of God. It's like, there's some truth to that. Yes, but more, there's more weight, I think, when it's like, God wants me to live healthy as a Christian. So people are like, oh, why don't you smoke? Because God wants me to have a long life to his glory. Like, that's why. So don't do things that you know are going to make you sick. Don't eat things that you know are going to make you sick. Like, do things that are healthy to the glory of God and have a long life for his glory. Uh, number three was abstain from things strangled. We'll go, you don't have to go there. I'm going to quickly go to Proverbs chapter 12. Yeah, so this... That's what I was just saying. I was like, birds, you like... Break their neck. Well, I mean, I not nowadays. That's different. that's different. There's like, there was like... they killed the cattle. Yeah. Oh, it has to do with really? how they killed the cattle back then. If they hung it, 
It was it. And it, it released different things and they thought it made it taste better. And like, there's, there's the, the point is, and I'm going to read this proverb really quick. Proverbs 12 verse 10 says, a righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Yeah. It's like, you know, you know, the heart of a man by how he treats his, his, his animals, right? Like, if he is kind to his animals, you know he's a kind-hearted guy. You know he's, he's righteous, right? And so what he's saying here is uh, abstain from cruelty. Because they were, like, trying to do this delicacy of, like, oh, if you strangle it, it makes it taste it. And it's like, ugh. like, it's just cruel. We don't need to eat cruel things. Now, in the world we live in, this can you can go wild with this, and people do. And it's really sometimes difficult to... To, to live like a cruelty-free life is a sort of a catchphrase now, right? But there's something to be said for considering, right? The Bible is full of these passages where God is like, I love and care for the birds. Like he, in Jonah, he, he mentions the cattle that he doesn't want to destroy for the sake of the evilness that's in Nineveh. He, he loves his creation. He loves animals. He has a heart for them, and he doesn't want people to be cruel to them. So there is something to be said about caring about the life of an animal. And, and when we feed our own flesh, like, oh, we're going to do this cruel thing to the animal because it's, like, fancy and expensive, that's evil and He's saying, no, 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 like, I don't want people to be cruel to my creation. I want you guys to take care of my creation. So he's saying, refrain from being a cruel person. Number four, that last one, uh, man, there's so many verses. Refrain from sexual immorality, right? Uh, we would be here all night if I showed you all of the verses about refraining from sexual immorality. But what I will say simply here is that God created one wife for man. When he created man, he said, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. So he, he created a woman for him to enter into marriage. And right away, this, the serpent, the devil, started attacking the marriage. Right? Marriage is a sacred thing. And God has, his will has always been for man to have one wife. And people, oh, like all these, like people throughout the Old Testament had all these wives. Nowhere in the Bible do you see that that's okay with God. He, he is always, and the verses over and over, like, do not forsake the wife of your youth. That's an Old Testament phrase that's constantly repeated. And he's, he's always pushing his people to, like, have this one wife who they love. And we've never been great at it. As Peter just said, like, we've never been great at keeping God's commandments. Like, we, we don't do it well. But, to take that a little bit further, and Jesus took it and to the next level, right? He says, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you are committing adultery. And I would say, in the world in which we live, that includes online. So, who are you looking at? No matter what, how are you looking at them? And if that person is not your wife, it's sexual immorality. Because the Bible says not to covet another man's wife. Well, if he's not your wife, he's somebody else's. Or husband. <laughs> or husband. Thank you, Jaslyn. <laughs> to, yeah. 
to, to covet someone else's spouse, we'll say, right? It's, it's evil. And if it's not your spouse, then it's someone else's. So to covet somebody else who is not yours, it's sexual immorality. And the point here is to be faithful, right? To be faithful. Be faithful to one woman. Um, because if you can't even be faithful to one woman, like, how are you going to be faithful to God? And I, and, and I say that, even as I say that, I think of all these godly men that were not faithful to their wives. And there is failure there, right? But that's why it's so important. Like, be faithful to your wife. Because it is that marriage, it's a symbol of God's relationship with us. Old Testament, New Testament, Hosea, God tells Hosea to take this harlot as a wife because symbolizing my people are like a harlot who are going and fornicating with all these idols. But, right? The, the gift of marriage is a picture of our relationship with God. There's an intimacy there that God wants us to look at and, and be faithful to so that we can understand the relationship with him better. So these are the four things that James brings up that they put in this letter as a group united saying these four things are precious. Sanctify yourself. Don't be like the culture around you. Be healthy, right? Try and live a long life to the glory of God. Refrain from cruelty, cruelty to animals, like stand out in that way and be faithful because Lord knows that's always going to be a witness because the world around us is not down for faithfulness. It, it just has never been. It's always been unique to Christianity. So be faithful to the glory of God. These things are godly, but they don't save you. If you notice how they finish this letter, he says that you'll do well. If you do these things, then you're, you'll do well, right? However, if you disregard what God wants and how God wants his people to live their lives, it's a symptom of faithlessness, right? James, the same guy who suggested what these four things would be, he writes a book later in the New Testament, and he says that faith without works is dead. Now, there's an important thing, and I think we talked about it at a coffeehouse thing recently. There's an important thing to mention that we are saved by grace. It's not at all by anything that we do. Like, our faith in Jesus is all that is required, which is not a work. It's, it's not something that we do that, that saves us, right? Um, so we can't lose our salvation by doing stuff, right? If, if you sin, you're not instantly going to hell. We are going to fail. We are imperfect. We're, we're not glorified yet, right? But if you are continually sinning and you're living this life of faithlessness, it's a symptom of a bigger deal. It's a symptom of having no faith. Like if you don't live the way God wants you to live, then are you, do you really believe what, God, what Jesus said? Because Jesus said a lot of really important things. And if you're like, yeah, I prayed once and I just live however I want. That's not, that's not biblical faith. That's not a, a saving faith. Rather, we, have, we believe everything Jesus said. And, and Jesus said, blessed is the man who hears the things that I say and does them. Not that the doing them gets them saved. But if you are believing in what Jesus is saying, then you're going to want to do what Jesus is saying. It's, it's a symptom of your heart is, is what he's, what, what they're saying here. You're going to do well if you act like this because it's going to be proof that you are a child of God. We can continue in 
Acts 15, verse 30. It says, So uh, when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. When they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. So they are rejoicing. I see two reasons to, to have major rejoicing. One is that freedom is an amazing thing. Like, they're like, man, like, we got to do all this. There's 613 commandments we got to learn and then start doing. Like, man, so when they're like, no, like, these four things focus on what God wants you to do. They're like, yes, like, rejoice. Like, okay, we are, we are set free by, by the grace of God, right? Number two, uh, the family of God is a precious gift. So the entire Christian eldership, the entire leadership of the Christian church of that time is accepting them and saying, brothers, right? We are, we are children of God together. And so they feel like this massive, they're sending this whole group of people just to say, Hey, like, no, like all, you don't have to do all this stuff. Like you're our brothers. And that's like, man, like, to experience the unity of the, the, the body of Christ, it's an amazing thing, and there's nothing else like it. It's like a little piece of heaven if you've ever experienced Christians just sort of with one heart and one mind worshiping together with no things getting in the way. It's a rare thing to really have that purity, but when it happens, you feel it, and it's an amazing thing to rejoice about. And they've been accepted by the body of Christ like sort of, I, I feel like they just felt this hug of this group of people coming from Jerusalem saying like, hey, we just came from the eldership. And they just said like, welcome to the family. And it's just like, wow, like that's, that's cause for a lot of rejoicing, right? So verse 32 says, uh, now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. So if you remember that this is the purpose for every gift of the Holy Spirit, that they're called spiritual gifts. We did a whole series on it. But the purpose for every single spiritual gift is to encourage uh, and strengthen Christians, right? To, to equip the saints, it says in Ephesians, to encourage Christians and also to make disciples. So they are encouraging these guys. They're strengthening them to go out and to further the family of God. And that's what Paul and, or, or sorry, that's what uh, Judas and Silas are doing here in verse 32. Continuing in verse 33. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So uh, we're gonna, that's where we, we're going to leave off the story. We'll pick it up next week in verse 36. And... Um, we're going to talk about how God works in and through the imperfect uh, next week. So the, some final thoughts on this personal revelation thing, because that's what we started talking about, right? Peter gets up and says, God showed me this thing, and that's kind of what started this whole conversation. Personal revelation is a really interesting thing. And what I will say is that when the word of the Lord comes to you, to test it. And I would say test it with three things. And I, I think I've probably touched on this quite a bit, but I think it's important. Test whatever word comes to you 
whether it be a dream or a vision or sort of a phrase that just pops in your head, because that happens, test it with the Bible, right? God will never contradict himself. If something pops in your head that, I can think of a few verses that actually are opposite of that thing that pops in my head. That ain't God. (laughs) That's, That's something you want to pray against. Okay, so test whatever pops in your head with the Bible. Also, if the Bible says something opposite of what you think you heard, or what you, if you have any sort of idea, right? Don't, I'm not just saying something, some phrase pops in your head. You, maybe you're like, huh, I wonder about this. And then you read something that contradicts it. You're wrong. <laughs> like, the Bible is truth and God does not contradict himself. Second thing to test the word that comes to you or, or any sort of vision or dream, test it, uh, with the Holy Spirit. Often the Holy Spirit will confirm what you heard by repetition. And sometimes this is serendipitous repetition, right? Like, there is no way that they could have known exactly what this person told me and what I've been praying about. This is a word from God. Especially if it's a preacher, it's like, man, there is some, like, weird connection here that I know God is speaking to me right now. And Dustin and I were just talking about that, where when there's that, that sort of, like, serendipitous confirmation, you're like, okay, there's something specific that God is trying to tell me right now. I remember for the longest time, I would see the number 311, like everywhere I looked. Look at the clock, 311. Like driving down the street, look over, I see the address, it just pops out 311. I'm like, man, that is weird. Like, it's weird. Like everywhere I look, this number popping up, popping up, popping up. So what I started doing is just starting looking through the Bible, every chapter 3, verse 11. <laughs> like, every, like, I read them all, and I was like, man, this is awesome. Like, there's some good stuff here, you know? Um, <laughs> but, like, when you see that sort of repetition, it's good to pay attention to that and test it with the Bible still. Because what I will say is that the enemy can fake serendipitous things. He can orchestrate, like... Satan, demons, they can orchestrate weird things too and bring people and have them say certain things like, oh, this other person said that and that can lead you off in some weird. So you got to be careful there. But when there's a word from God that is coming that is like, man, I was just praying about that. Like, that's something to pay attention to. So also the Holy Spirit will often tell someone else the exact same thing he told you. So you'll get like a, a dream or a vision or a word pop in your head. And then somebody will come to you and be like, man, like, I don't know. I had this thing, this word or phrase or this dream. And they'll tell you this thing. And they're like, you popped in my head right after. It's like, I had that same word or dream. And this might sound weird to you if it's never happened, but it happens. And you're like, shoot, like God is speaking to us here. Right. And so... That's how the Holy Spirit can sometimes confirm things. The third one, uh, test what you hear or see with wise counsel. And this is all throughout Proverbs. And we see it here in what we just read tonight, right? Peter is going to the entire eldership and saying, like, here's the evidence for my personal revelation. And the whole eldership comes into agreement with him, right? Wise counsel is a really, really big deal. And, and what I mean by wise counsel and what the Bible means by wise counsel is... Um, biblically strong leaders in your church. Someone that you you know this is their foundation and they are strong Christians. They are not compromising. Those are people you can get wise counsel from. Obviously, it's even better if you have some like really 
faithful and against friends who have just a solid foundation, you can get wise counsel from them as well. Go to them and say, hey, I had this weird dream. I don't know if it's from God or what's going on. And a lot of the time, the Holy Spirit will speak to that person some wise counsel for you. Well, look at this first. Maybe you didn't think of it in this perspective. And you're like, okay. And God will sort of guide you in your personal revelation that way. So I'll close in prayer. I brought a bucket full of candy. <laughs> um, and I love where that came from. <laughs> yeah. Anybody want a bucket? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Oh, dear God, I thank you so much for, man, everything we talked about tonight, your, your grace of saving us, uh, the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that empower us to do your will, uh, the, the community and the unity of the Christian life. I thank you so much for your word, um, how it was uh, inspired and written and preserved, and now we're reading it tonight. God, I thank you so much for that, that we can read it and get to know your heart more. God, I thank you so much for personal revelation, that not only do we have the Bible, not only do we have all these gracious gifts that you've already given us, but you still speak to us personally about what's going on in our personal lives with dreams and with words from friends and with the church speaking into our lives, these personal things that you are speaking to each and every one of us to draw us closer to you, God. It is an amazing thing, and I love you for it, God. I pray that you will help us to pay attention when you speak so that we can continue to hear your voice and not try and hide our sins, rather face the things that you're bringing to us with humility and honesty to you so that we can grow in you, Lord. We love you and we praise you, and I pray that you will continue to reveal yourself to us and um, help us to be glorifying to you tonight and this week in everything we do and say, and uh, bless our fellowship tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.